0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on today's podcast, Kevin S., got sober in 2020 with a backstory of drinking that belied his ultimate identification as an alcoholic who needed help from AA. Raised in a successful family where neither parent was an alcoholic, various ancestors had suffered from the disease, though a few had gotten sober in AA. As alcoholism seemed to skip a generation, Kevin had managed his drinking to achieve a successful business career and an active social life as well as marriage and four children, well into his 30s. But the patience of the disease outlasted Kevin's growing use and then abuse of alcohol. Toward the end, drunken behavior and negative consequences rapidly appeared in his life, threatening his job, marriage, and physical health. By the time he asked his parents for help, his attempts to quit drinking on his own had failed miserably and culminated with admission to an inpatient treatment center. And though Kevin often chose not to attend the optional AA meetings offered by the treatment center, his exposure to the program was enough to lead him to the doors of AA when he was finally willing to throw in the towel. That was over three years ago from the date of this podcast. And Kevin is still sober. He got a sponsor, worked the steps and did what AA suggests to build a solid foundation for sobriety. Kevin regularly attends meetings, sponsors other men and clings to the innermost regions of the program. That his marriage and career survived is yet another one of those miracles that occur whenever sincere and active work is done in AA. If you're early in AA recovery, I feel you'll gain much from Kevin's message of hope. For those listeners with longer-term sobriety, his story provides a great pause to reflect on your own experiences in the early years of your membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. Irrespective of where you are in your own recovery, you are sure to enjoy the next hour of AA recovery interviews with my friend and AA brother, Kevin S.
1: Kevin Alcoholic. Hi, Kevin. Uh, Hi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I say after people say hi to me. Yeah. And it works out pretty well because we get to know each other a lot better once we've been cordial and greeted the other person with their nice. names that's like really cool it. i'm glad that uh you and i are doing this today right after a really cool step study meeting on the ninth step what did you think about that
1: uh that there was a lot in the meeting that that grabbed my attention you may have uh you may have noticed i got teary-eyed at at a moment mm-hmm. um just uh man, I I get in this ambivalent phase a lot where I'm dealing with both set of emotions at the same time where I'm Mm -hmm. wildly grateful uh, for the position that I'm in today. Mm -hmm. Um, but when someone was talking about hearing their family members talk about them and, uh, you know, how, how they could convince themselves that, you know, I only did this, I only did this bad. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'd be scared to hear uh, the real story of um, what I was um, in my household. Some of the nasty things that some of my fami- family members probably still hold on to. Um, and yeah. so when when they shared that, it brought up, uh, brought up a lot of emotion for me. But then um, on the other hand, like I said, so grateful that I've done this and there, I went a couple different places with the topic, um, and it's funny how the steps, as you progress mm-hmm. in your sobriety, they they kind of mean different things to you at different times. Um, and certainly I felt that step nine was a way to get me into 10, 11, and 12 and a preparation for usefulness and prayer and those things. Um, but I'm also realizing now that The discomfort that came with step nine for me, how much that prepared me to be uncomfortable in other situations. And my wife and I laugh now that um, if I'm uncomfortable with it, it probably is what I need to be doing.
0: And talking about feeling uncomfortable, there's probably no greater sign that you're working a good program than if you get kind of discombobulated or kind of... uh, emotional or uncomfortable with working a particular step or doing a particular thing, that means you're doing enough of it to get uncomfortable, which to me is which is really great. Now, you've been sober, uh, I believe, three years? Three years. Three years. That's incredible. What's your sobriety date?
1: October 12th of 2020.
0: I know a few people around the world who have that date and... It's a cool date because isn't that uh, Columbus Day? The original Columbus Day was October Ooh, 12th. Oh, if it is,
1: I don't know that. Yeah,
0: now they call, it, uh, they call it by something else. But I remember when I was a kid, Columbus Day, I think, was always on October 12th. Okay. So, you know, we, we were talking about the uh, ninth step today. And this particular meeting has been going on for quite a long time. It's kind of an outgrowth from the other meeting that you and I go to here on Thursdays. How long have you been coming to this particular meeting?
1: less than a year mm-hmm. but in this room that we're in right now they on Monday is a book study and Friday's is the step study yeah and i would say for the last somewhere between 7 and 9 months i've tried almost to go to both almost every week unless i'm i'm traveling
0: early in your sobriety were you going to book studies and step studies or just mostly discussion meetings
1: mostly discussion meetings and i have found a lot of the book studies and step studies to be really thought provoking and useful to me here in the last year or so
0: yeah they're really helpful I think especially when the people who are leading those meetings spend an adequate amount of time because sometimes I think especially with book studies there's this tendency to want to get through a section quickly so people don't dig into it too deeply but that's really great that you're doing that and how about from the standpoint of men's meetings Have you always gone to men's meetings or has that something that's been more recent for you?
1: More recent. I still go to both. Right. But in the last year, similar to coming to these men's meetings, there's a different level of vulnerability, I feel like, in the room sometimes.
0: What's the big difference or the differences that you perceive between a stag meeting, a men's meeting and a mixed meeting?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it tells us in the book that sex relations is part of this thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you don't typically hear people go there in a mixed meeting. And uh, I feel like you do get that honesty in here. And I think just the natural, just the way we are naturally, there's a little bit of extra reservation with someone of the opposite sex sometimes make us a little more nervous. It's just like dating, right?
0: Yeah. We want to look good. and We want to sound good. What's interesting about that, too, is I have found that the majority of mixed meetings I've been to over the years are predominantly men, and it's been that way over all the years I've gone to mixed meetings, and there was a period of time where my sponsor had me go to nothing but men's meetings, and I did that for several years. This was early on in my sobriety, and I said, why do you want me to only go to men's meetings? He said, well, because you're getting it's clear to me you're getting too distracted in the mixed meetings by either thinking about saying something the right way or, or trying to impress or whatever it is. So I went to men's meetings for, for a number of years, and only men's meetings, one a day. And when I went back to the first mixed meeting after being to all those stag meetings, it felt weird. It felt weird. I, think, I thought I was who are these? who are these other people here? <laughs> what is this? And, and, they were, and, they were, and they were all women. So, but I, I do think that you're right. The energy is different. The vulnerability is different. And there's a certain energy in the room of all men. And I understand from the women who I talk to, cause I asked that same question to the yeah. women, what do you find in the women's meeting that you don't find in the men's? And part of the women's uh, answers to that is the energy level, the vulnerability, but all, also one of the things that they say, and, and I get this is, uh, they say, if I go to an all women's meeting, I don't have to worry about being hit on by the guys. Oh,
1: I've heard that too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in, in the Houston area in a suburb northeast, Kingwood, Texas. Is there a history of alcoholism in your family? As far as you can go either direction. Is that right? Yeah. Tell me about it. So my immediate family, my parents are still together. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of drinking in the, in my household growing up because there's a lot of horror in Around alcoholism and addictions on both sides of their families Mm. so uh, my mom did not, I've never seen my mom take a drink ever Um, 39 years old so I don't think she has since she was a teenager uh, maybe Um, Mm -hmm. and then my my dad drinks fairly limited but outside of my family of origin every direction you go so aunts and uncles um, addiction, suicide alcoholism Mm you know, multiple layers of, of generations. It's all there.
0: Have you been seeing that your whole life what, uh, from the time you were a little kid? Have you been seeing that in the extended family?
1: I've seen it in the extended family. You know, it's, it's, it's unique, um, too. If you looked at my family tree and with a worldly view on paper, on paper, uh-huh. a lot of business owners, a lot of professional athletes, right? a lot of worldly success, the vast majority of them miserable, depressed, alcoholic. Um, like I said, you know, overdoses and suicides and things mm. of that go go either direction. So it's just which way which way do you view it? If you look at the family tree through this lens, you just see addiction and alcoholism. Yeah. My parents were super intentional about trying to uh, break the mold, um, even just. In, in the means of being committed to their marriage which is awesome and I'm I'm one of three so far uh, I'm the only yeah. one in, in my family are you the oldest I'm the middle I, I kind of took on the typical firstborn yeah um, even though you're in the middle with my personality that's yeah. interesting
0: yeah you mentioned some horrors outside of the outside of your immediate family and we'll talk about that a little bit but I wanted to ask you when you were a child, Obviously, you knew what was going on with the success and the different things that your uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody else were involved with. When did you first notice something about the alcoholism? Or when did you first notice as a child, what was going on in the family?
1: that's a good question. You know, what's interesting is my first knowledge of what it was, was actually in hearing about it through AA. Really? Wow. Yeah. So I knew about AA really young. I had an uncle that ended up moving to Kingwood. He had lived elsewhere, moved to Kingwood that was sober. I mean, lived recovery. So I knew of AA of that and had grandfathers that were in, or and I had one that was in, um, another I think that was in and out. So I knew of AA and then- Knew of alcoholism more through secondhand speak, through through my parents. So yeah. my parents dealing with an aunt that needed to go to rehab. I didn't see it. It was more secondhand uh, given to me.
0: How did you see that affecting your parents? But
1: they my my parents took on a lot yeah. in terms of helping their parents and or siblings with addiction and alcohol and trying to walk the line of what might be enablement and what might be help you know i think both in terms of time and and money
0: so in your extended family tree you've got the alcoholism but you've also got aa recovery yep and people trying AA and not continuing others who are continuing it, were they talking to you about AA? Did you at any point ever say, what is this AA? What are these meetings you're going
1: to? You know, no. Um, I have one memory of being a kid. And I couldn't tell you if I was 8, 10, 12. I'm not sure. And I went to an AA meeting with my grandfather and then went out to dinner with his friends afterwards. And I don't know what was said in the meeting. I remember being around these older gentlemen. So I remember that now. Uh, that's Well, I know now what I was doing. I didn't know then what it was.
0: Uh, as you were growing up, if somebody had said to you while you were a child, let's say even preteen, that guy's an alcoholic, what what would have popped into your mind? What was your your understanding of or the image in your mind of what an alcoholic was or looked like?
1: You know, it didn't change. You asked when I'm a kid. I mean, I'll be honest, my view didn't change from 6 to 34. Hmm. Um, I, I I viewed it as uh, a really bad choice that they were making.
0: Do you think that that attitude might have been tempered by the fact that it was happening to your grandparents and your uncles and
1: aunts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I can't directly correlate it to something my parents said, but obviously it was an impression that I got somehow through the communication I was having with my parents. I'm sure there were times my parents were frustrated and they just can't get it or they can't, you know, mm-hmm. and I was picking up that that there was something they could be doing about it and they weren't. Mm-hmm. So I viewed it as a decision.
0: So one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that People whose parents were both in Alcoholics Anonymous for decades and yet they still became alcoholic and drug mm. addicts themselves. Mm. And if, if, I'm, if I get become an alcoholic, even though my parents were and I saw all the bad things that happened and then I saw all the recovery in AA, I might still become one because I wanted to prove that I wasn't one by doing the very thing that made me become one. Does that make sense? hmm yeah, how how did that kind of thing play out for you? Did you did you have the uh, the sense of wanting to prove that you weren't like your uncles and aunts, or what really got you going?
1: No, not until what way late into it was there any recognition on my part that it would even be a possibility. Wait, and th- that seems crazy saying it now. Yeah, having just told you what I told you about my family tree and history, and my mom telling me it's important mm-hmm. to. And somehow I, I, I didn't think. Again, I think I go back to thinking that it was a decision, mm-hmm. and me going, I understood. I understand they made all these decisions that mm-hmm. got them to that place. Yeah, I won't make those decisions.
0: So, what was the decision you made when you took your very first drink on your own accord?
1: That, that's an interesting question. And, and for, for quite a long time, I was fairly reserved towards alcohol in comparison to the peers that I was running with
0: uh-huh.
1: all the way through, you know, you hear all the college party stories. I really don't have a lot of that. Um, I mean, I would go out some and definitely have some party stories, but pretty limited
0: Can you remember what you were thinking when you had to make the decision in college to either drink or not or to party or not?
1: Now, in hindsight, I I have pretty clear recognition that even my thinking around alcohol was screwed up because alcohol's only purpose for me was to not feel the way I was feeling. So to get drunk, not so maybe that's why I didn't drink that much, because I didn't want to go to dinner and have two drinks or go out with friends and have three drinks I was either going to not drink at all or go party and have a lot.
0: Based on the way that you were feeling.
1: Well, I just knew. like, And it was even forward thinking, right? So if I have something tomorrow, well, I'm not drinking at all tonight. Right. Or, okay, yeah, we're going to go out this Thursday, and I'm going to go out, and I don't really have anything tomorrow, so I'm going to have 12.
0: So you were doing it, kind of more based on the circumstances that were going on, and the availability and the uh, the time frame. When you just mentioned about, you would drink to a certain point to calm or quell whatever it was that you were feeling. Was that in that feeling that you're talking about? Was that there all along, or is that something that came and went, such that you could drink and not drink without too much trouble?
1: So in in college, it was more of chasing the exuberance, the high of like being in a crowded bar and exciting. And Mm -hmm. I was chasing that. What eventually came to me, you know, trying to quell a feeling or get rid of a feeling rather than than chase something fun. Um, Yes, that was uh, it's been in me since I was little, little, little of a feeling inside of me that I I didn't want to feel.
0: Have you been able to identify that feeling?
1: Yeah. My core belief of myself was that I was not good enough.
0: That's a really common refrain in Alcoholics Anonymous. And out of all the interviews that I've done, it's probably the most commonly stated fact for each individual was that they felt like they didn't belong, they didn't fit in, they weren't comfortable in their own skin. Where do you think that comes from?
1: For me, um, you know, some of that may have been the way I was naturally wired. My belief system is that uh, we're naturally wired to have a need for a higher power for God. Mm-hmm. If we if we didn't have some flaws that we wouldn't really have a need for a God. And so some of that may be I kind of feel like my alcoholism, you know, you get into these debates of is it genetic or a choice or my answer is just Yes. Like genetics, choice, all like atmosphere, all of it played a role in mine. And I would say the same about that core belief. So maybe some of it's genetic. Uh, The other part of it is I was just born with a lot of energy. And um, from very early on, uh, Mm -hmm. mainly my mom didn't really know what to do with me. And Mm -hmm. my older brother, I mentioned earlier, I kind of took on some of the firstborn. My older brother's very a little more docile, a little more passive, and I mean, you can go back and read my baby books to this day of my mom writing, you know, Kevin's full of energy and anger, and I don't know what to do with him, and just so my my storyline uh, of my life and my family was that something was wrong with me.
0: A lot of times people will attribute that to things like ADHD or ADD. Was there any of that?
1: You know, we tested for all that stuff. I I don't think it was. Mm. I just had a lot of energy and I just didn't know where to put that energy.
0: Exuberance is what you said earlier. And exuberance is like a positive, joyful energy as opposed to manic uh, or something like that. So yours was more on the side of exuberant, enjoying.
1: I I don't know. I just there definitely became a point where I struggled with emotions and anger. So as a young, young age, two, three years old, when I had a lot of energy, um, I don't know that I had developed that yet. I just was a handful and I wanted to be outside and I wanted to go and I wanted to do and you know, my at the time there's only two of us. So for my parents, you know, there's one kid that will sit down and play Legos on the living room floor for five hours without a complaint and the other one that wants and needs a lot.
0: So your parents did their best with you through that time. What were your school years like? Junior high, high school, and even college?
1: Uh my first identity, my first identity perhaps addiction whatever was around athletics. Uh-huh. Uh, which is a common theme in the family tree also. So professional athletes, PJ Tour players, NFL players and so I really just identified as an athlete, mm-hmm. and that really was my school. I did great, made great grades, all that stuff, but I, I didn't care necessarily about school. It was all just about the sport that I was playing at the time. My friend groups were the sports. Um, all of my identity was in sports, and that led all the way through college. Huh. So I played um, sports for in college, and then when that stopped, you know, I, I found a new identity. So my schooling years was mainly around athletics.
0: Did you do well uh, scholastically or academically?
1: Yeah, I, I did very well um, in school still, but I did not apply myself at all until um, the junior my junior year of college.
0: Did you aspire to be a professional like your relatives?
1: No, I don't think I thought that was in the cards. One of the people I interviewed
0: a while back was a a professional baseball player. And he said, I didn't get involved in a lot of the stuff that other people were getting involved with. Just because the, the sheer schedule I was under, you know, I have to be at practice at such and such a time. I have to be available at such and such a time. Members of the team would go out to do whatever they did. But it was largely the discipline of having to stay involved to be good at the sport that was the greatest to to
1: having problems early on. I would certainly say that that was true for me too. And there's other little accountability barriers that took place in my life that I think prevented me from manifesting the alcoholism yet.
0: I get it, yet.
1: So it was athletics for a while, and then there's a professional point that I hit where, and that became a new identity, Mm-hmm. That I wanted a certain, I wanted to obtain a, a certain selfish thinking. I wanted to obtain these um, professional, you know, titles and things. And then I obsessed over that and I worked a lot. And I always had this little bit of accountability, I guess, that, you know, I got, I'm getting up at five thirty or six tomorrow and I'm going to the office. I don't want to be hung over. That really prevented me from drinking all that much. For for a while, I'd say the
0: majority of people who've appeared on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast, if there was an average age that they started drinking on their own accord and and uh, for effect or to fit in or whatever it was, is it was about fourteen. One of the people we saw up on the Zoom screen today, he didn't start drinking until he was in his thirties. Interesting. And so you've got people at really both ends of the spectrum. Is there much of an alcohol story through your
1: school years or not much at all? Not much at all. So I probably took my first drink somewhere Mm. in the 15. And and when I say that, I mean drunk, you know, in the 15 to 16. And um, my parents probably wouldn't believe this. You know, I was a little mischievous and had that energy. But I really, you know, the kids that were partying and stuff in high school, and there certainly was that going on where I went to high school. um, I wasn't really in that crowd because I was worried about sports stuff. And then in college, either sports or something else had me concerned to not do it too, too often.
0: My experience with that was that we moved between my sophomore and junior year in high school. It was a really traumatic transition. And so going into my junior year, I didn't have very many friends at the new high school I was at. But I did get a girlfriend, and I had a girlfriend, and she didn't like to drink or smoke or anything She was yeah. beautiful and, lo- and I loved her and everything else and she made it real clear to me that if I wanted to stay with her I had the choice yeah. to make between her and the behavior that a lot of kids around us were exhibiting with drugs and alcohol and so for the sake of a relationship I didn't start drinking until I was about 18 mm-hmm. and then went off to college and then all the stops were pulled at that point and that's when she and I ended up breaking up and everything over that kind of stuff so like you, I was able to keep myself from drinking or wanting to drink because of some other some other goal or some other prize or some other good situation that mm-hmm. would go bad if I ever started to drink.
1: If I had to pinpoint when my my view on alcohol as a relief, not as like a go out and enjoy it, mm-hmm. changed, um, is somewhere between 28 and 29. Hmm. What was going on at that time that made you shift? um I had achieved having a lot of professional success. Mm -hmm. I was married. I had, at 28, I have one kid. I can distinctly remember feeling like, is this it? Hmm. Is this, you know, I I guess I thought at some point, whether sports or professional or whatever, Mm -hmm. that I would wake up one day. And I guess now looking back, it's maybe, you know, would I feel significant? Would I feel that I was significant? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's all inward selfish thinking, but I had won a major award in my industry. Mm -hmm. I'd been on the cover of the Houston Business Journal Mm -hmm. and I had had all this success. I guess I probably wasn't feeling the pull to be the first person in the office every day for my age. I was in a very senior position in the industry that I was in. Um, so in a lot of ways you had arrived, I had arrived and, but it didn't change the way I felt. So
0: isn't it true that we always kind of chase the thing that the, the illusory thing that, you know, we want to be a success, but we don't know what success looks like until we get there. And we never get there because it keeps shifting along the way. Yeah. Did you just keep moving your target up as you got older until you hit that stage? Like, I will be happier if I do this. And then you do it, and then I'll be happier if I do this.
1: I think at that point, right then and there, which this is super young, but right at that point, I I thought, oh, man, like, there's not really a way. I mean, there were more bars to hit, but I didn't tie huge significance to them. Like, I've arrived. I'm good at this. I've done this. But I still don't feel like I'm good enough, and I don't feel like – I've done anything right or well, even though, you know, kind of the worldly accolades yeah. suggest professionally I had.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. There, there's a uh, a phrase that's, the, that's bandied about and has been for a number of years now, the imposter the yep. syndrome, yep. where people achieve great, great things, but they still feel like they're an imposter, like – Sooner or later, somebody's going to find out that they're not who they think they are, even though they're already that. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So you're 28 years old. You've got a wife. How mm-hmm. long have you guys been married by that
1: point? I got uh, just barely. So we got married when I was, uh, I just had my 13th wedding anniversary. I'm 39 now. So I was 26.
0: You were 26. Okay. So... Was any of your drinking, and we're talking about drinking now, were there ever any drugs like marijuana or other things in among okay None. so we're talking about strictly alcohol here uh, Did any of the behavior that you might have experienced occasionally in college with going in and out and partying did any of that ever show up in your- in your during while you and your wife were dating or early in your marriage?
1: Yeah, I mean I would go out with with friends and I lived. Inner loop where we could get to the bars and stuff easily mm-hmm. on the weekends. Yeah. Some of that stuff showed up where I would go out and kind of party on a random Saturday night and things like that. Mm. Yeah, was your wife? Did she drink? Not like me ever. She total normally normie. So, what kind of crowd did you run around with at that time? So, predominantly athletes or former athletes. So, it's all all the guys I ran around with were um, guys I had interacted with in a sport.
0: How did you feel when you were with those guys? Did you ever, did you ever long for what they had done? You know, if they became professional or whatever, did you ever look back and say, I, that could have been me or, or were you satisfied with where you were at?
1: I, I think in my early twenties, there was an element of I maybe could have taken this a little far, farther, further, and a little jealousy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I quickly shifted away from that because mm. then I, I was achieving professionally uh, faster than my peers.
0: But you weren't hanging with your peers outside of work time. Um, I
1: was outside of work time. O- yeah. Outside. Okay. Yeah. I'm talking about the people you were working with. Oh yeah, some. Yeah. Yeah, some. Yeah, And, and I, I was always the youngest by, you know, five to 15 years. So when
0: your wife first started to talk to you about your behavior, what was she saying?
1: So my wife comes from, I won't call it alcoholic. I will call it from uh, an alcohol abusive uh, family. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so my wife... All the way up until the very end, never said a word to me about drinking. Huh? It's normal behavior in her family.
0: So she was dealing with something kind of
1: familiar. Correct. And her whole dad's side of the family is, you know, abusive of alcohol. And that was normal behavior. So I probably, at the time, all the way through our marriage, was probably pretty mild in comparison. Hmm. That that too
0: is is fascinating. When I think about the kind of connection that we all have to each other through the disease, my wife grew up in a in an alcoholic home. Her father was in and out of AA for years, mostly out. He died. He died kind of a horrible death mm. as a result. Um, and a lot of times, what happens is the women will seek out people who are like the people in their family who had the problem. Because they couldn't help the family member, but maybe because the problem is still the same, they could help the pers- the new person with the problem and have some kind of reconciliation of feelings. Do you get the sense that you, you were attractive to your wife because you felt familiar?
1: Probably. And her, her family is an athletic background, brother, college athlete. I probably felt very familiar to her.
0: And did she feel familiar to you?
1: Yeah, well, it sounds
0: like you guys got a pretty good relationship, though, if you were able to still do what you wanted to do. Uh, and she said something to you about it, but it, it, wasn't,
1: it wasn't too uh, harsh? No, she, she never said anything ever until the very end.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audio book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, place. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So what was going on towards the end? What what was your... I mean, how bad had things gotten and what was going on that made you turn to recovery?
1: Yeah, so... Somewhere in 28, 29, I realized that alcohol can be a relief, right? So that starts simply, you know, just I never drank at the house ever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to like, you know, maybe we'll have wine at home or maybe I'll have beers after work or have beers in the front yard with the neighbors. Like that's what everybody in the neighborhood does. Well, they didn't drink like I drank, you know, I kind of wish I knew when I crossed over. Um, there's times I would have told you, you know, man, I don't know that I really crossed over until I was 34, 35 years old into addiction and alcoholism. Um, but that might be me manipulating myself a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll look back at camera rolls or things like that of pictures I've saved or just think back to memories and go, well, wait a minute, I was 33 then and Man, that was a lot of drinking that over that weekend, or something like that. And so I don't know exactly when it changed, Mm -hmm. but there's a period somewhere in there, like 33 years old, maybe, to where the alcohol becomes an everyday thing. Mm -hmm. Not a crazy excessive amount, but it's a relief every evening to get home and, you know, we may split a bottle of wine. Or when I say split, I have three and a half, she has one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's
0: a split nonetheless. Right? Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Three to one maybe, yeah.
1: And then by the end uh-huh. of, so going through the end of 2019 to 2020, I'm um, uh, 12 plus drinks of vodka a day. And really the only way that I can go to sleep at night is if I black out. Oh, yeah. So- I would um, pretty much take a really stiff cocktail to bed with me um, and, you know, my wife would read a book and go to sleep and I'd have to hammer, you know, a big tall vodka, you know, then I got to the point where I was noticing like, oh man, and I'm bad about the actual sizes, I guess a fifth of vodka or whatever. So, you know, I'd be like, man, I drank a fifth of vodka last night. Mm. How how much is that? You know, I'd be on my phone. (laughs) How many, you know, oh gosh, like I had 14 ounces of vodka last night or, you know, and I'd start Googling. um, And that's when I started doing some of the secretive behaviors, Uh like might hide a bottle towards my closet. Or, you know, we'd have liquor around the house or whatever, but then I'd wake up in the morning and be like, oh shoot i think I think i I drank both those bottles of wine like that's embarrassing, and you know I'd go throw one in the dumpster or right. you know i started I started the secretive behavior
0: Almost as a form of denial that you were really drinking all that much.
1: Certainly to hide it from my wife. I was embarrassed about my
0: behavior. Did she find it at all? Did she ever find it and say something to you?
1: Towards the end. And maybe she had found it before and didn't say anything. But towards the end, she'd be like, hey, there's a bottle of vodka under that cabinet. Do we need to do something about this? What are we, we going to do? And actually, the very end is her having confronted me. So the middle of COVID. yeah. We've been in Colorado with my mm-hmm. family. At this mm-hmm. point, I have four kids. Beautiful. I have a beautiful family. Beautiful. I have an 11-year-old son, a 10-year-old son, well, 9-year-old son, and I have identical twin girls that are seven years old. Oh,
0: how sweet. Yeah. That's great. Uh,
1: you probably can tell. I'm getting teary-eyed just talking about them because I'm blessed. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And we're in Colorado, and I've had four handles of vodka over a two-week time period, mm-hmm. and she confronts me. It's COVID and my parents are staying in, in a, a unit down from us in Colorado mm-hmm. and they had known what was going on and things were, I think, awkward around the trip, but I was so oblivious. I was drinking so much. Mm. Um, and I guess through God, I mean, I was pretty drunk even when it happened and she confronted me and I was like, you're right. And right in that moment, I walked down to my parents' door, mm. I knocked on the door and I told my dad. Mm. Mm. Uh, I have a drinking problem What did he say? We sat down on the uh, step on that front door and mm. uh, you know he had been around it enough he didn't do anything but love me and I cried and he rubbed my back and he said, uh, this is step one and we'll get you some help when we get home and uh, I didn't get help right away But you stayed sober? No, not right away uh-huh. uh, That was the beginning of like how do you even do this I don't know what this is. I don't know what, I know what AA is, but I don't know how it actually works. So that was the beginning. That was July. I told you my sobriety date, October 12th of 2020. That was July of 2020.
0: Okay, so it took you three months to finally get it.
1: So I went three weeks sober one time. On your own? On my own. Yeah. And there's some pretty, towards the end, I mean, I'm telling you about the the con- amount of consumption of vodka, but there's some, there's some pretty grim stories in there. There's some, um, a hospital visit. I don't even know what really happened, I guess, alcohol poisoning. Um, there, there's some stories like that there in the end that, that are really sad with my family finding me on the floor and things like that. So July, I I make my first attempt at getting sober. Not in AA. Not in AA.
0: You know, the, the quantity that you were drinking and the frequency with which you were drinking, most people would have a lot of different consequences as a result of that, especially if they were drinking on the job or if they were drinking around their families or if they were drinking while they were driving. What kind of consequences did you experience while you were doing that kind of drinking?
1: I, I feel that I have plenty of consequences. Um, I do not have many worldly. Worldly, what do you mean? There's no arrest. There's no, you know, driving while intoxicated. There's no, you know, I don't have any criminal charges. I don't have any, uh, I didn't have any job issues. You know, I had lost, uh, hope. Um, I had pretty much ruined a marriage. But in terms of like what would show up on paper as a consequence of my drinking, there, there wouldn't really be any. And
0: the, the reason I ask that is because sometimes the absence of a consequence just delays the getting sober by a period of time that might be as short as a few weeks or months until the next consequence, or it could be years down the road.
1: Yeah. So there were health consequences in a way too that I ignored. My immune system was all screwed up because I was drinking so much and I wasn't exercising and things like that. But, you know, I'd, I'd get sick. Who knows if I was sick or hungover. I don't know. I'd go to the doctor and they'd, you know, take blood and then they'd go, your liver enzymes are insanely out of whack. You need to go to a whatever doctor. And, you know, I think I went once and they were like, "We want to do a scan of your liver," and I'm like, "Heck no!"
0: What did you tell them when they asked you how much you drank?
1: Who, you know, I think I would lie. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> how could you not with that volume? Yeah, I, I, I don't even know that. I mean, the real answer would be like, you know, per week would be a hundred. I don't remember ever being honest about it.
0: So you refused further investigation of your internal organs to really nail down the cause of what was going on with your liver.
1: And at that time, I was like, man, I got to I gotta stop this.
0: So you were able to tie together that consequence with the actual drinking?
1: Definitely. But I didn't. I didn't. It's like you hear, like, I would say, okay, I got to drink a lot less or I need to do. But at that point, my, I'm in my... Alcoholism. I'm in my addiction.
0: Well, you're also still relatively young and healthy. So the the kind of damage that shows up with uh, uh, cirrhosis, it's rare for it to show up in a guy in his early 30s unless he's just, I can imagine it showing up for you given the volume you were drinking though. Right. How many years before you stopped were the hospital visits?
1: A hospital visit was in 2019. So that's right before. So that's probably less than a year before. In
0: a way, you were suffering some consequences from your drinking. So after you make the decision, I'm going to stop. You, you said you you went for three weeks. Yep. And then what did you tell yourself three weeks later before you took that drink?
1: That's a good question. So both times, so they're, they're July to October, there's a, about a three-week window where I don't drink. I Two and a half, three, I'm not sure exactly. Um, and both times I was going to an event Uh and I guess in my mind, looking back, I still viewed being an alcoholic as a choice, Uh you know, Hey, I stopped for three weeks. I'll drink tonight. I won't drink tomorrow. That's what normal people do. And then, but both times, once I went, I went. People talk about it happening gradually. Yeah. We're like, oh, the first night I had, you know, two margaritas, and then a year later I was back to drinking like that. Night one, put it all back in,
0: yeah. all of it. So yeah. right, right back to where it started. Sometimes the ability to stop for a short period of time becomes the evidence that you aren't an alcoholic because you can stop, and an alcoholic can't stop. And then someone might say, well, I was a binge drinker, that's why I could stop.
1: But how did you find yourself wrapping your head around what you were doing? I'm, I'm I'm so glad it happened the way it happened. And I, I feel that, you know, God was involved in it uh, mm-hmm. because I hear the stories of going back out where it like lasts a long time and then it takes yeah. a while to get back to where you were at. I mean, once I, I would stay sober for three weeks and then the second I started drinking again, it, it was almost like even just three weeks earlier that was worse than I even was then. You know, then I had opened this kind of box with my wife and family that I was going to stay sober. So the secretive and the lies got worse. I was leaving my house to run around to CVS to buy 12 whatever, I don't know, these all these little seltzer things these days, sit next to the dumpster, drink them as fast as I can, dump all the trash in the dump. Like everything became worse. everything. everything. And then that would last for two or three weeks.
0: Was there some shame associated with that?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 And then gets over again for two or three weeks. And then I do that again. Sounds to me
0: the times that you were getting drunk, though, were the kind of occasions that you could maybe justify it. Like if you're going to some kind of event. That's
1: what started it. So I would justify like, well, I mean, normal people go to this and drink at the event, the wedding. One of them was a wedding. Uh Uh-huh. Or, you know, this hunting trip that I went on. Those are the two events. And then by the time you go home, you just don't drink. So I still identify it as being normal.
0: So when you were at these events, especially I would think hunting, but even at a wedding, there are people around you and friends and people you know that say, you're not drinking? What's going on? Did you have any of that happen? Yeah. And what were you you telling people before you actually drank?
1: You know, it's interesting. I, I, I right away at the wedding and things like that, I would say like, I was drinking too much. COVID got a hold of me. We were yeah. at home, Yeah. you know, kind of explain it away. Yeah. Um, I was almost more honest about it then, than right after the time I, I really got, I knew I was an alcoholic cause I was so, so scared to say I was an alcoholic. Yeah. So when did that occur? I got sober. So two weeks, three, you know, those things happen. Two weeks, three weeks, two weeks. Yeah. And like really, really, tough day, uh, was October 9th, 2020, which is my wife's birthday. Mm -hmm. Um, and she had actually went on a little girl's trip Mm -hmm. and left me home with the kids and I'm supposed to be sober. And, you know, probably through God's grace, um, everything was normal for as far as I know for the kids. You know, i put him to bed that night, but I, I even remember, like, I mean, I was like, man, I wasn't eating a lot because I was drinking so much, mm-hmm. um, like not feeling good that night and just being like, man, I just got to get to eight o'clock, put the kids down. Well, what happened is, you know, I... I got to that eight o'clock or whatever. And alcohol was my solution, but alcohol was also the problem. Right. So anytime I didn't feel good or whatever, I'd be like, man, I probably need more alcohol. Do I feel sick because I don't have enough alcohol or do I feel sick because you know, I have too much alcohol. And so I put the kids to bed, you know, I'd been drinking while they were awake, just to be clear. Yeah. And when I did, I think I just, passed out right away. Mm. Well, then my wife's calling to check in on the kids and stuff. And I wouldn't answer my phone. So I woke up five 30 or six o'clock the next morning and my Mm -hmm. wife was laying next to me. And I was like, why are you here? She cut her trip short. She had come home. Well, and obviously at some point that evening I'd interacted with her and my mother-in-law but I don't remember it or I don't think, I I don't know. I don't know what happened.
0: he blacked out. Yeah.
1: And she came home and the next morning, you know, was my first interaction with them. And then, uh, they, so that's October 10th. Yeah. They left with the kids, you know, to get them out of the house and I'm in hot water and whatever else they went and did a park or something or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as they did, I'm just overwhelmed with, Guilt and shame, and so what am I going to do? Drink more. So I went straight to the liquor store. And that set off uh, just trigger of events over the next two days. I can't even explain all of it to you, but I basically was in and out of blackouts for two or three days. My wife and kids had left the house. She had begged me to go get help. I said I wouldn't, um, but I, I didn't know what I was even doing. You know, fortunately, for whatever reason, I guess in like moments of little hour-long windows where I would wake up and have moments of clarity, mm-hmm. um, I would search rehabs and treatment centers and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so stubborn and selfish. Like my brothers tried to come help me. Like, hey, we're, we're taking you right now to rehab. And uh, so, you know, okay. But then an hour later. I'd say no, or take me back home, or you know, there's no consistency. I mean, I was a lunatic, and um, but eventually I set it up myself. Um, and one of those nights or days said told my parents like, "Come pick me up tomorrow morning," or you know, I won't do it. Yeah, and we'll leave. And I uh, I left and I went to rehab in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was uh, the beginning. You know, they were designed for 30 days, so I stayed for 18 days. Okay, so at that particular treatment center, did they have AA meetings? They did in the evenings. You know what's crazy? Uh, I didn't go to very many. It was, AA meeting was a choice. Everything else wasn't.
0: That's interesting. Of course, AA is always the choice, but... That's one of my big beefs with some of these treatment centers is they're great at getting people sober, but the handoff to AA is not real strong, or for some of them, it's not even there. But optional AA at a facility where everything else is- Mandatory. Mandatory. Uh, I don't know. So you skipped going to AA meetings? I would
1: go some, some, some but- Did you have to go through withdrawal? Um, so I didn't there the first time I told you that I got sober for yeah. three weeks. Uh-huh. Um, I went through pretty bad withdrawals. Okay. Uh, and rehab, I re- I really I really didn't um, get the shakes or sick or anything like that. And uh, the first time I got sober, I threw up for three days. When you're
0: there in Dallas at this treatment center, you stayed for eighteen days. And then decided that was enough or did they decide it was a mutual decision?
1: They, they tell you, you got to go or, and so they, they, uh, I I will say if they did anything right, what they did is you had to have a pretty good, uh, I say you had to, I don't know what you had to or didn't have to, (laughs) but when I would meet with my counselor, you know, you'd put together an aftercare plan. Right. And, um, I, I guess I felt like I had to, and I uh, put together... So that was inpatient. Yeah. I agreed with them that I'd do outpatient, mm-hmm. and I signed up right then and there. Mm-hmm. They tell you, hey, you're leaving, what you need to do, you can go to our outpatient over here, you can go somewhere else. And so I made a plan with them. And when I um, came back to Houston, it was just really, really hard. So all, all through rehab my my wife told me that we were we're done oh man so every day that I would talk to her she would say that we're gonna get a divorce Um, that's rough and then when I came home I didn't really know that I wasn't welcome at home Uh so I came home to go home like went to my driveway and she was like you gotta go Um,
0: you were in rehab for 18 days so this is early November this is early November 18 days did you come right home after the eighteen? Or? I came home,
1: but with an outpatient deal here. Okay, so but you yes. you went
0: to outpatient while you were here, and so were you in the midst of that outpatient when you showed up back at home, or were you? I hadn't that?
1: started yet.
0: You hadn't even started that yet. Okay, yeah, yeah. So she had it.
1: Yeah. So and then, you know, a couple days somewhere else, and then got a, an apartment, uh-huh. and uh, I would go to outpatient uh, four hours a day, every day. Uh, keep in mind, I, I, um, didn't have job consequences yet, so I was still trying to hold up a job. So I was four hours in the morning, work about four or five hours, an AA meeting, and then do it over again. And I did that for 90 days. So I did that through the calendar year of 2020.
0: So tell me about what happened next.
1: So I came back, I did the outpatient and, um, you know, you know, in hindsight, there's good to it. I don't know that there was any work done on, you know, the heart and the spirit and the reason why I was drinking, Mm -hmm. but it did keep me sober. And so during that time, I went to enough AA to realize that there was a solution in AA and you know, the way the program works through the way people like you work through the way people, you know, God works. Um, you know, if I tried to draw a connections map of how I ended up with a sponsor and mentorship and Mm -hmm. people I knew and it all just came together.
0: So that 90 days ended when,
1: um, so at that time I'm doing both the 90 days and AA, so I get my sponsor during that 90 days. By uh, January of 2021, right? I end the outpatient, and I'm just doing AA. During that period, I went back home.
0: How, how long into that did your wife let you back?
1: December of 2020.
0: Okay, so you were out of the house long enough for it to kind of sink in. Yeah. That must have been really tough on the kids, their dad not being around for a while there.
1: It was. It was. I don't know the impact it had on them. Uh, is yeah. very hard on me. Um, I I truly believe only through through God's grace. But um, you know, I I loved on my kids really hard. Yeah. Even even in my addiction and alcoholism, and um, I I uh, you know it's crazy. I mean, even saying prayers with them every night. And stuff like that, even while you were drunk. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it's funny. I think uh, early on, I caught on that one of my twin daughters, uh, when I was tucking her in sober, yeah. she didn't recognize the smell of my breath. No alcohol on my breath. She said something to you about yeah, it. Yeah. Out of the mouth of the babes. So. I know. So she's only like three years old at the time, right? So I'd stopped. She was recognizing the absence of alcohol as a, as a strange smell. So that, that was really hard. Uh, I saw my kids a lot um, during that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was coaching my kids sports teams. So, you know, I would still pick them up and go to practice. Um, you know, I was coaching one of their, well, both of them were on the team. Both my boys were on a football team that I was coaching drunk.
0: So that's really a whole nother podcast, let's say, because the act of alcoholic and the interaction with family, especially kids and its effect on kids, is it safe to assume it was significant enough that when you stopped, it was very noticeable?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of the night step meeting earlier and, you know, my oldest definitely knows. Yeah. You know, he lived it. Uh, yeah. My other's uh, really didn't. Yeah. Um, one, because they were young enough that the awareness wasn't there. But two, they didn't get the brunt of my right. outbursts or, um, you know, just lack of clarity Yeah. Um, where my oldest did. So
0: he suffered the, some of the collateral damage that the others missed, but still you never know what effect— Correct. That kind of stuff. Has. Yeah,
1: he has direct collateral damage that yeah. the others probably have some.
0: Now, is is he old enough to understand or uh, about AA and your need to be in AA meetings?
1: We don't describe it that way. Right. Um, he knows that uh, God worked in my life. Right. That I need accountability. Uh huh. From uh-huh. he knows that I don't drink. Uh huh. He Good. knows that I stopped drinking. Uh, he knows the principles of the program, but. I don't say I'm going to alcoholics. I mean, when I wake up on Saturday mornings, he goes, are you going to go to a meeting this morning or are you going to go for a walk? Or like, you know, he says things like that. He knows. Um, yeah. He knows my routines. Yeah. Uh, so yes, he knows all about what it is. He knows about the people. Uh, I mean, he's had guys come to us from in here, this meeting, come to his sporting games. Oh,
0: that's so cool. Uh,
1: you know, how do you know him? You know, it's funny they've picked up too. And I'm digressing from your question slightly, but you know, one time I was at the basketball gym mm-hmm. and, uh, I gave a guy a hug from the program. Why well, don't give guys hugs. And they're like, Hey, how come there's a certain group of guys that when you see you hug? And I was like, Oh, it's funny. You picked up on that. Like those are the guys that I do life with and that we help each other. And wow, that's you know. kind of cool.
0: Yeah. So So you get sober, the last three years you've been going to AA on a regular basis. Have there been any times within that three years where your sobriety has been tested or have there been times that you've kind of been skating around the rim at all or have you stayed pretty much in the middle of the program?
1: You know, progressively gotten further into the middle. You know, I I would have told you and you may have heard me share in some of the meetings Mm -hmm. we go to. I mean, I really thought like I'm a pretty quick learner Mm -hmm. and I'm going to – I'll understand what the program is and, you know, um, but I, I, I would say it took me a while. And mm-hmm. so I would now say maybe I'm not the quickest learner and I'm okay with that. Uh, so I was pretty committed to continuing to go to meetings. I was really good about reading literature. I, I read a lot still, uh-huh. yeah. um, and, uh, moderately good about r- reaching out to my sponsor. Okay. And I really thought, At the time that alcohol, like I'd reach out to my sponsor about alcohol. Right. And it took me quite some time to, you know, practice these principles in all your affairs. So that took some time for me to get to that. Yeah. And then somewhere between the 12 month mark and the 18 month mark, I had this big, just eye opening, grateful. Oh my gosh you know, this is what the program is. This is a way of life. My my view on all of it changed, and I leaned in more. I go to more meetings now than I did the first year.
0: Between 12 and 18 months, that six-month period, you had this kind of wave of spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. When it comes to sharing that with other men, in the form of sponsorship. What have you done in that regard?
1: Yeah, I try to make it uh, myself present. You know, we were talking about particular meetings too. I had to take a look at the meetings I attend and I think there's times to go to a meeting to uh, serve and there's times and hopefully we're always doing both uh, and, and times to consume. And I try to make sure I'm always in a couple meetings a week with a fair amount of newcomers. That's cool. And all of my sponsees have come through those, those meetings that I go to. Um, I have attempted to sponsor maybe seven, eight guys, not all at once. Over the last maybe 18 months, uh, I probably didn't sponsor anybody the first 18 months. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot through that. I'll bet. You know, every time I'm taking them through, I'm going through the literature and the work, and I've I've learned that uh, it can be very hard. Yeah. That uh, and, and at times you have to refocus again. That it about it's not about the result that I'm getting, and who knows what the result may be long time, long term with uh-huh. those folks, um, because most of them have gone back out and yeah. are out currently.
0: But the proof of the success of what you're doing is reflected in the fact that you stayed sober through it. Yep. It looks to me like you get that clearly.
1: You just never know when it's gonna come back around. I've had new num- I've had I I got two phone calls two Sunday nights ago. Yeah. Both from sponsees back out looking for help again. And you know just pick up the phone. Yeah, when we'll just, you're ready, you're ready. And hey, we, we got to get you into a detox, like, can I help you do that, you know, and just... Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah.
0: Sounds like you're working a pretty good program overall. Yeah. You're staying in the middle of the program, you're you're passing on what you've got, you're reaching out to men, you acknowledge the fact that you're staying sober, even though some of the people you sponsor may not. I mean, you're hitting it on, on all cylinders. And, Thank you. I mean, my hope is that you continue to stay as active as you are and make as much progress as you do because, I mean, there will always be as much stuff in front of you as there is right now Uh, but also to be a a young dad and have kids whose lives measurably improved by the fact that you're a sober dad Mm -hmm. and having a wife who, whatever blessing she had in marrying you to begin with probably been rekindled by your sobriety as well so I, I see a a strong future for you if, if you continue to do the work. Yeah. And, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of
1: add at the very end? Uh, I'll, I'll close with this, a cool experience that I had had this week. And, uh, I appreciate what you said. I feel like I'm just, and I, I am in the action, but I'm the beneficiary of what the program is doing. I, I bet you, and I don't want to exaggerate it all. I bet you I had the worst professional day of my career on Tuesday of this week. And I was out of town. Uh-huh. And I wanted to fix it. And by the way, you came into my my mind with the pause when agitated and doubtful, something you've shared quite a bit recently. Um, And— I I didn't know what to do. Every part of my instincts wanted to fly back to Houston and try to fix it and do this and that. And this is where the program is a life solution. Mm -hmm. I was in a small town. I got on my meeting guide app. I went to a meeting with seven people in the small town that I was in. And um, I just sobbed, but not because— I was overwhelmed or upset by the event that had taken place. I was crying because I knew I was okay and I had never felt that before. I'd never been in a bad spot and said, I'm just okay. Like yeah. this, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to have anxiety over this. I'm going to go to my AA meeting. I'm just going to be with my people. And you know what? This, this, The seven people in that room were saying all the same things we're saying. I talked to the people after the meeting. They led me back to the solution right there on the sidewalk. Back to the solution. These people I'd never met before. And I I just walked away going like, this is what it's about. You know, this this is an, an example of just the program serving me. And that was really powerful for me. Wow.
0: Yeah. What a beautiful demonstration of a program well worked. I mean, to have that available, have those seven people in your life when you needed them most. And for you to have that sense of, sounds to me like an awful lot of gratitude. Even though you were experienced a horrible situation, you were able to be led right back to the center and to the solutions and to some peace by 7 total strangers is awesome. Well, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Cool. Well, Kevin, I I do appreciate you doing this today. Uh it means a lot to me as I, I tell all of my guests I love you and I honor and respect you. your uh sobriety and my hope and prayer for you is that you continue to do the things that you're doing because I think you'd make a great sponsor. So I'll ask you right now on the record If I should run across somebody in a meeting that you and I are in who needs a sponsor, would you mind if I grab you and pull you in and introduce you? Absolutely. Okay. I've done that before. Happy to do it. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Kevin S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. AA Recovery Interviews is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and all other podcast providers. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at dot com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.